was the most amazing week this week. Artemis One rolled to the pad. I mean, it's this huge rocket as big as the Statue of Liberty <laughs> and the first moon rocket in 50 years. And so I, so I can't tell Katie, are you excited about this? It's not coming across, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I always, I mean, I've, I've, been part of you know planning to go back to the moon and having to tell people you know we really are I know it takes longer but no it's not going to leave right away I mean right. they're going to basically they brought it out there they're going to do everything all the way up to launch including fuel it with gazillions of gallons of fuel to check everything out and then they're going to surely have things that they need to figure out sure. and they're going to roll it back to the building yep so it's going to take some time but it's still an incredible step forward and. I think just seeing it, I don't know if you saw any of the pictures of um, like they would show the moon. Actually, I didn't. I've just been I've just been ridiculously busy. I should have paid attention. Well, for people out there, you know, go and, you know, look at your favorite source of social media and look at, you know, Artemis on the pad. It was a full moon with the rocket right in the foreground. It's uh, it's a beautiful thing. Plus, I have actually been on that crawler. I mean, my <laughs> space shuttle was on that crawler, and it is really cool to be on one of those. I, I, I was going to say, I'd accuse you of name dropping, but I'm not quite sure a crawler counts as name dropping. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it has like a gangplank to get on the crawler. I mean, it goes one mile an hour, so you can easily walk up the, the set of little swinging steps and, and get on. And I found that like astonishing, like you're really okay. Like if I fell, wouldn't that thing like roll over me? <laughs> and then I realized that all of the safety things like where they go, okay, you have to tie down your pens and pencils and cameras, everything has to be attached. It's all about whether the hardware gets hurt. Right. Not about you. If I'm like under the crawler <laughs> getting rolled over, probably it's not going to hurt the crawler. This this feels so relevant to today's topic, which is all about ways to die in space. But of course, now you've got me worried about ways to die before space. <laughs> well, but we've now eliminated the crawler. Okay. What about you, Andrew? What have you been up to this week? Oh, I've been doing a whole bunch of stuff. But the thing that really grabbed me was not on Earth, but in space. That first alignment image from the James Webb telescope. Did you see that? I did. It was incredible. I mean, and this is just the alignment. I mean, the, the news is that things are good. Yes. Right? Yep. So far, so good. And the stuff coming back is great. And of course, they've got a lot of other stuff, uh, a lot of other instruments to align yet. But it's looking really exciting. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Today on Mission Interplanetary, we're asking, what dangers will the first crewed mission to Mars face? To me, that sounds kind of glass half empty, okay? <laughs> but actually, it's not, really. It's like, we're going to go. We'd better know, right? I know, and it's pretty dangerous up there. But actually, I was going to ask you, so you've been around the world a few times on the International Space Station, just a little bit of metal and I don't know what between you and the vacuum of space. Did you ever feel as if you were in danger? You pretty much know inside that you are the whole time. Right. But you also know that like the stuff you can do something about, you've been trained to do something about. Right. You know, there's like a hole in the space station. We have patches. Okay. And we, <laughs> and, we were in, and, and we actually, you know, we have a whole procedure to kind of figure out, is it in this half of the station, that half, let's close those doors. And, and, you know, so we have procedures, but then, you know, there's, part of it where, you know, it is a risky business. Right. I guess that's just part of the job. I don't know, Andrew. I mean, you're a physicist and you understand more of the math and the physics 
You know, yes. people explain all these things to me and I do understand them, but you feel them in your gut in a different way. What does it feel like for you? Well, I, so actually, and it's more than just the physics. I mean, because with the the part of my work where I study risk, I study every every nasty thing that could happen to people. And we're these squidgy biological organisms going into a really harsh environment. So yeah, there's a lot that I worry about. Now, like you, I think if I was in space or on that first mission to Mars or a future mission to Mars, I'd probably be thinking this there's a lot of stuff that could go wrong here, but we're prepared for it. And that would give me a lot of comfort. But I'm aware of there are so many things that could go wrong. I mean, we are really delicate things that we're throwing into space. But, you know, when you stand out in your backyard and you look up and you look out, I mean, that's our home too. And people are going to go figure it out. And I, I really love to be in one of them. And I guess this is part of being human. I mean, we accept the risks in order to truly live life. So, Andrew, let's get to our weekly obsessions. This is an obsession that has been going on for 10, 12 years, I think, but it has special significance this week. Um, it's a competition, but it's a competition for scientists and school kids. It was started in the UK under the name of I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. And what I'm so excited about is we're actually running the competition for only about the second or third time in the United States at the moment. We're right in the middle of it. But this is a competition where you get a bunch of school kids together in their classes, so their teachers are part of this, and they're connected with a panel of five scientists. And the kids are allowed to ask the scientists anything, literally anything, as long as it's sort of polite or oh, not. Oh, this rude. is awesome. I know. So they can they can ask things like, so what do you have for breakfast? What are you wearing? Why is the sky blue? Why do we go to space? Anything they think of. And the scientists have got to answer. So that's what happens in the first week. The second week, the students start kicking the scientists off the island. So each day they vote for one of the scientists to leave, which means that if the scientists have been patronizing or not answering questions or not on top of things or just not very nice people, the students get rid of them. And the last scientist standing is the winner. And I love this competition because it puts all of the agency in the hands of the students. So let's clarify a little bit, like students, how old are the students? Yeah. So these are typically um, middle school age students, but they're students from all sorts of backgrounds, which means that the sort of questions you get are all over the shop. Hard. Actually really hard and really challenging. Like one of the, the questions I, I heard some years back was, how do magnets work? And you had a bunch of scientists who suddenly said, uh, actually, I don't know. And it was that oh, that's... point of revelation where the, the, the students were asking questions that the scientific community, when they really, truly thought about it, just couldn't work out what the answer was. So back in 2010, I was part of the, the, the British I'm a Scientist Get Out Get Me Out of Here um, competition, and I won. This is awesome. I, I was the one standing scientist, and I still have a mug that, that commemorates that. Um, but it was one of the most transformative experiences, I would say, of my professional career. Maybe we should have, you know, five astronauts on the island and we see should. how that goes. We absolutely <laughs> should. And actually, we've, we've got to get you onto this as well, Katie. So yeah, I mean... I would say everybody needs to check out I'm a Scientist. Um, it's just imascientist.us, and you can actually see the questions that the students are asking. I can't wait. I can't wait. But how about you, Katie? What's your obsession of the week? Andrew, I've been sort of obsessed with you. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a bad way. Okay? That is such a conversation stopper. Well, I mean, 
you know, you think you know someone, you think you know things about them. And then I got this. Um, There's we going to be ex- some deep revelation here, isn't there? <laughs> no, it's not so bad. But but we were exchanging, you know, kind of like, you know, social media handles. I mean, the season's starting up. And and I asked you for the social media handles of your schools. And I, I've been thinking about acronyms a lot because, of course, right. I'm a NASA person. We acronym everything. And Andrew, I, I was like, do I even know this person? Who are they? And they work at ASU underscore S like Sam, F like Frank, I like India, S like Sam. What is it and what do you do there? I know. It's it's acronym alphabet soup. So yes, I work in SFIS and CGF and GFL and goodness knows what else. But but there is uh, there is method to this madness. So SFIS, which is the, the school that I'm a part of, is the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. And the name actually, um, it confuses people, but it captures this idea that we actually study what it means to innovate in responsible and beneficial ways as we build the future, which is really Really quite exciting. Well, and, and I'm I'm not picking out ASU because right. really acronyms are everywhere. But I I found this particularly fascinating. Right, right. Many many years ago, there was a realization at ASU that we're doing ourselves a disservice if we stovepipe ourselves in traditional discipline. Because in the future, we need to be able to mix and match these disciplines and these areas of expertise. So there was an intention of creating schools and colleges with really unusual names because it breaks that habit of thinking that you're part of just one discipline. And instead, it encourages our students and our faculty to think across disciplines as we focus on actually solving problems and building a better future, taking those tools and those bits of knowledge from everywhere. So this this was the method behind giving us all really weird names, which we have to use acronyms for because nobody can remember the long names. <laughs> so fascinated as we all are with acronyms, we should get back to our big question for this week. What dangers will the first crewed mission to Mars face? For many years, both NASA and SpaceX and others have had plans to get humans to Mars. Back in 2016, for instance, Elon Musk unveiled his plans for establishing permanent communities on the red planet. Last week, he suggested on Twitter that he expected the first human to land on Mars by the end of this decade. And let me just say now that I think we're probably going to be covering this in season nine. Does that make it? (laughs) (laughs) A crewed mission to Mars would be our most ambitious space mission ever. Humanity's first step onto another planet. So you may have read Andy Weir's book, The Martian, or seen the movie of the book with Matt Damon, or other science fiction works that depict thrilling and spectacular stories of humans overcoming hazards on Mars. But what sort of dangers will such a mission really hold? What do we really need to plan for here? Well, to get answers, we spoke with a person deeply familiar with the dangers of human space travel. Julie Robinson is the chief scientist and manager for science and technology utilization in human exploration and operations at NASA headquarters. So there's an acronym for you. (laughs) (laughs) So Julie has spent her career studying and managing science in human spaceflight. In her position, she works to integrate the strategic objectives across all of NASA's human missions. And she recently led development of NASA's research strategy for using the space station and Artemis to prepare for human missions to Mars. When it comes to current thinking about the dangers awaiting that first crewed mission to the Red Planet, Julie Robinson is truly one of the top people to learn from. Julie Robinson, 
Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, we know that NASA and SpaceX hope to send humans to Mars in the next, can I say, 10 to 15 years? And we'd like to understand what are the dangers that those people are going to face when they go there? Let's say the top five. What are the top five dangers for the first crewed mission to Mars? We talk about the five hazards of human spaceflight, and they're actually there in any human spaceflight, but they're much worse when you think about a mission to Mars. And, and those are uh, radiation, which I think a lot of people have heard about, the alteration of gravity, both what it's like on your way there, as well as in being partial gravity on the surface, isolation and confinement, being locked in a box with a small number of people for a long period of time, uh, the distance from Earth itself, which means that you can't communicate rapidly back to the ground. There are calm delays and calm blackouts potentially as well. And then finally, being in a hostile closed environment, you're basically recycling your water, breathing your own air, plus anything that off gases from your spacecraft, and that you're also living with your own microbes in that, that closed environment. So those are the kind of five big hazards that we think about in human spaceflight. And if you notice, when I talked about them, there's almost a sixth one built in, which is the time. So the longer the mission, the more each of many of these hazards have an impact or introduce a risk to the crew. So that really is an exacerbating factor. I must confess, it actually surprises me that there are only five because you sort of, you think in sci-fi terms about space and you think there must be thousands of ways in which it's dangerous. But obviously everything boils down to these fundamental sort of foundations of ways to die or ways to sort of really suffer in space. <laughs> Just like in our daily life, if you think of the uh, risks of going to the grocery store, <laughs> right? You can think about those in exactly the same way. So there are certain things that are high likelihood, low consequence, like getting in a fender bender. Mm -hmm. There are also things that are low likelihood, high consequence, like getting T-boned at the intersection in front of your grocery store and, and killed in that car accident. And so all of our all of our risk assessments look across all of those things. So so our listeners heard it here first. Julie Robinson says going to space is like going to the grocery store, except much, much bigger. <laughs> much, much longer. <laughs> well, well speaking of speaking of time, I know this, you know, is gonna change as the plans change and the vehicles change, but what are your thoughts on how long it would actually take? Yeah, so there was a reference architecture back in two thousand seven we called DRA five. We did a lot of relooking at that expected architecture in 2019. The biggest difference was the duration. So in 2007, we thought, well, once you get to Mars, you should spend a lot of time on the surface. But when you start looking at it from a human systems risk perspective, the longer that mission, the harder it is to get the crew there and bring them home safely. And the first time we do a mission, we really want to get that getting them home safely right. We want to try to reduce the risk. And as we gain experience, we can start pushing the boundaries of time and the boundaries of other challenges. So in 2019, we went through and reassessed what's the fastest mission that we could do to get to Mars, have the crew do meaningful work on the surface and come back home. And so we started looking at a 30-day surface day. For a 30-day surface day like that with different kinds of propulsion that we think might be real, might be developed between now and then, you're still looking at about a 900-day mission at a minimum. Whoa. So that's about the shortest the mission can be. So when you're, how, how are you thinking of that, Julie? Like it's a year to get there? Really, roughly a year to get there. 
roughly a year to get home and then sometime in orbit to wait for everything to align and then that that 30 days on the surface. So talk us through that year to get there because I, I'm fascinated with you talking about time and that sounds like a long time to be in a capsule with others. Um, and actually the thing that's got me really worried is these microbes in there, but of course you've got the radiation and everything. So talk <laughs> us through what that is likely to be like and how we need to be able to address those potential risks. Yeah, so that's something we're studying right now. You may have heard of us doing one-year missions on the International Space Station. We've now done five missions that were 270 days or longer on the International Space Station. Um, back in deeper space history, our Russian colleagues did a few long missions on Mir. Um, but we look across that entire record. We have a set of experiments that have been selected to use duration as the independent variable, if I can go geeky science speak on you a little bit, <laughs> and actually try to understand across short, medium, and long duration missions with identical measurements, what's the curve? Mm -hmm. What does that curve look like? Um, that would allow us then to project, you know, if it's a 400-day mission instead of a 365-day mission, we'd feel like we had a pretty good guess as to what the curve would look like for a variety of different effects. Mm -hmm. And, and Katie, remind me, Katie, how long were you on the International Space Station? Only five months and twenty-three days. Okay, right. So, so you were you were right at the beginning of that curve in terms of a, a data point here. It's true. I did want to stay longer, though. I mean, it it is it's a fascinating place to to live and work. But I what I felt when I was up there was that literally every single data point that I helped be a part of or collect was one step closer for us understanding the things that we want to understand that I think Julie's talking about in order to go to, to Mars. But do, do you want to do, do you want to talk some about what we've learned on the space station that makes you feel like we're beginning to, you know, understand these risks and, and keep put them in a box that we can handle? Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about the space station is we've got 20 years under our belt now of, of research with the crew volunteering as subjects, which is an amazing data set. When we started, we were doing roughly four-month missions, and then we extended it out to do six-month missions. And now we've started to dip into these longer missions. But across that trajectory, what we worried about has dramatically changed. So when I started working with the space station in 2004, one of the biggest things we were talking about was bone loss. And, and that was something we talked about during shuttle missions a lot as well. So crew members floating around were coming home. They were losing a lot of bone, up to one and a half percent of their bone mass density per month. We're really concerned about that. And we would think about Mars missions and we'd say, wow, you know, when the crew gets to Mars with that kind of bone loss and then they wear a heavy suit and they stumble around on a planetary surface and they're going to fall down and they're going to break a bone and then they're still going to have to come home. And will that bone mend? I mean, we were thinking of all kinds of problems. The big thing that changed on the space station is we were able to start looking at the impacts of not only pharmaceutical interventions, but also vitamin D and exercise and nutrition. And what we found was a much better combination of vitamin D, high intensity resistive exercise, and the right kinds of components of the diet 
that has really reduced the overall bone mass density lost in the crew. Now, we do have some crew members still lose a little bit in some places. Some have actually built bone in their, in, in their hips, for example, because they've been doing a lot of high-intensity resistive exercise. So we've got it in a much better place, and we still have pharmaceutical interventions available. You know, it's not that, that any scientist ever doesn't have a question, um, but, it, but it's not the risk. It's not one of our top risks that we're concerned about now. We feel like we know what to do. We know how to treat the crew. But we have new things that we've learned from the durations on the space station that we did not expect at all. Mm -hmm. For example, we have something called uh, neurovestibular syndrome. We call it SANS for short, space-acquired neurovestibular syndrome. And it's essentially uh, a swelling of the optic nerve that changes the shape of the eye. And some crew members have significant vision damage from that. A few crew members have permanent vision damage. And Although at first we thought many crew members didn't have problems, now that we've gotten better at taking measurements, flown the right equipment, we're finding that every astronaut has a little bit of an effect, pretty much. And this is a microgravity effect, I'm assuming? We, we think it's a microgravity effect. You know, there could be some extra things along the sides, and we don't have agreement among our scientific experts, our ophthalmology experts, on the mechanism. So it's something that's still being pretty actively studied. So I've got to ask, how easy is it to find appropriate medical treatments in space? So I, I'm thinking initially about the, the International Space Station, where we must have um, examples here. But then extending that out to a trip to Mars, if you're 900 days away and something goes wrong, or somebody develops a condition that you never knew was going to develop because nobody's been in space that long, how well equipped are we to deal with it? So the answer for that is the same as the answer would have been for the Lewis and Clark expedition, which is if you don't bring it with you, you don't have it. Right. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking through, you know, what is the medical complement, both mm -hmm. the medical equipment as well as the pharmaceuticals that we need to bring. We have to have pharmaceuticals that can survive in a deep space environment for at least three years, potentially up to five years by the time you preload them and pack them and all of those things. Most drugs are not certified to last that long. And in fact, we know some drugs break down pretty readily in a radiation environment. And then we have to also figure out how to have the knowledge to treat the patient, not be dependent on the ground. Right. So uh, in an emergency situation, the crew on orbit have to be able to take care of themselves and each other without waiting for information back from the ground. If you're in one of those 20-minute comm delays, you've got to make your decisions and go. Right. Of course, if something's slower, there would be time to consult. So we have to think through all of those things. What's our medical system? What's our, our pharmaceutical kit? Um, how do we cover for everything that might happen? Um, another area of kind of cutting-edge research that's going on is thinking about, could we fly the right kind of bioceuticals? In other words, could we fly bacteria that could produce certain components that we might right. need? Now, that's cutting-edge. That None of that's certified to actually dose the crew with, but those are some of the things that the, the long-distance thinkers are working on. But I'm fascinated... I I was going to say, I'm fascinated you're working on it. So presumably, you could actually be starting to look at things like um, genetic engineering, especially with yeast and bacteria, where you could program them to produce what you need on a mission. Right. So that is an area of active kind of long, long lead research. We won't be doing that on the first mission to Mars. Right. We'll be taking a well-planned medical kit, uh, well, well shielded and protected. But, but it is an area that is potentially productive in the future. 
Julie, do you do you find that some of these you know challenges like how to how to make drugs like that that it actually inspires the industry down here on Earth to be innovative because they know it's needed for space? And I'm thinking about you know packaging for food. You mentioned drugs, three years food. That three year limit is is pretty real as well, or it used to be. Um, do, do you think it's it's helpful here on the in terms of inspiring research down here on the ground? Yeah, one area where I've seen a lot of that kind of inspiration is in thinking about small ways to produce food. So, you know, if you think about um, villages in remote areas, say in the Arctic, uh, there are places there where they don't get a mail plane in the winter and they don't have really good ways to grow fruits and vegetables. So they don't have that different of a problem than our crew would have on the surface of Mars where they've been isolated for a long period of time. Um, Certain vitamins are really hard to keep shelf stable. And so the ability to produce at least key food items with vitamin C, vitamin A is a really important part of your health in a far northern Arctic or Antarctic climate. It's also a problem we would have for Mars. So I think those are those kinds of exchanges are really inspiring. And there was a set of contests that we sponsored along with the Canadian Space Agency where we really looked at that. What are the food deep space food challenge, we called it, for them to think about how could you grow food in space and bring innovative ideas in. But the reason that the Canadian Space Agency was such a great partner on that is because they were very interested in could this help their own people um, who were dealing with food shortages and, and limitations in transportation of food in the hard winters. And, and what about trying to make things last longer, food that we do bring, drugs that we do bring? Yeah, I mean, we, we've been working on food packaging for a really long period of time. There's a challenge both in having good packaging that will preserve the food. And then even if you have good packaging, the palatability declines as things start breaking down inside the food. When uh, when, when you think about success stories, I mean, we were, we were talking about food. I think about some of the plant experiments that I did starting on the shuttle and then, you know, a little bit up on the station. And now, I mean, they are growing food all the time up there. On the and they're station. eating it all the time, which I remember when you, when you were, I think it was your mission um, that, you know, somebody said, Could, couldn't we let them try it? And it was absolutely not. You know, there's no way to be sure that that's safe. And you were probably trained. You absolutely may not taste this, whatever you do. So and, are we going to uh, get in secret confessions now? Did you, Katie? Did you? <laughs> we did not. We did not. <laughs> they scared no, but, him to death, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but actually, you know, just that range of, you know, we were nowhere near growing food when I first started mm-hmm. flying in space. And now it's, you know, a regular practice to grow it up in space. So it seems like that risk is getting marked off your list. So I'm assuming that the radiation hazards on a trip to Mars is going to be very different from in the International Space Station. Am I right in saying that? Right. So the International Space Station in low Earth orbit is inside the Earth's magnetosphere. So you can think of that as like a giant free radiation shield that helps to deflect a lot of the galactic cosmic rays and so forth around the crew. They're still getting a lot more radiation than they would on the ground, but it does provide protection. And in deep space, we don't have that uh, protection. So we need to pay attention both to the shielding of the natural materials around us, Mm -hmm. things like uh, bags of water or pretty good radiation shields. The other thing that we've been doing is re-looking at our radiation models and what are the right estimates for how to keep the crew safe. 
So one thing that's really interesting is we've recently updated uh, some of our radiation standards. And those standards, the updates are based on two kind of interesting facts. So one is that when they were first developed, uh, people thought cancer was a death sentence. Right. Um, And think about in the 1970s, if you got cancer, you assumed that was it. Now we know exactly what kinds of cancer tend to be triggered by deep space radiation. And uh, many of those cancers are treatable and curable. So that lets you make certain changes in that model. You still want to protect the crew. You want to understand the risk. You want to inform them of the risk. But it may not be as bad as it was originally looked at to be. The other thing that we've learned is that um, we can look differently at the way men and women are modeled. So it used to be women were highly protected. And that meant that women really couldn't do long missions without crossing over their radiation thresholds. So making differences there so that we're really looking at crew members equitably, I think, is also really important. So there's just a lot of updated thinking about really being testing yourself on your estimate of these risks. What is the likelihood? What is the consequence? And making sure you're not making a silly judgment based on an assumption and instead really trying to be quantifying what the real risks are, what's the real incidence, what's the real impact of those things. But So NASA has famously been very, very risk averse in the past. And now we're beginning to talk about um, trips to Mars where we've already said there are these hazards out there, there are going to be elevated risks that we have to navigate. At what point do you say we have to accept these risks and we have to accept that there are going to have to be things we overcome rather than just pull back from them? Well, we have a chief health and medical officer and a, what we call a technical authority. It's just like we have an engineering technical authority that says, hey, the mission is safe to fly. The equipment's going to perform as we expected. We also have a health and medical technical authority that takes an independent look and says, yes, the mission is safe to fly from a medical perspective. Mm-hmm. And they are at every flight readiness review. They also help us do independent assessments of all our risks. That way, you know, the people who are planning the missions who really want to get the crew going and the crew themselves who may be very motivated now that they've trained to just go ahead regardless of the risk, they're not the ones making that final decision. We use that independence. But what, what I've been seeing is just a real rigor to the way that we're analyzing the data. And I think partly, especially because of the International Space Station, because we have so much more data, we can use, use data to make informed decisions rather than just use a gut gut check. We use the same kinds of risk approaches that we would OSHA would use in looking at the risk of a radiation worker, say someone who worked at a nuclear power plant. Right. We don't treat astronauts any differently. They have to be informed of their risk, quantified. Every astronaut wears a radiation badge so they personally know their risk and how that's accumulated over time. Mm-hmm. Because when you fly, makes a difference. If, if you flew on the International Space Station in a solar max versus a solar min, your lifetime exposure is different. So all of those go into personal risk calculations that the crew are informed of. Julie, do you think you'll learn more about radiation risks um, on the first Artemis flight, the one without people? And we should just clarify what Artemis is. Artemis is, is the human return to the moon. So for the human return to the moon, we have a combination of things we can measure, both deep space radiation and partial gravity. And that's something that we have never been on the moon long enough to take meaningful measurements of. It is a huge 
uh, predictor for the kinds of risks that we might see in crew members on a Mars mission. And so getting that data together with reasonable durations is a super exciting thing. We're not going to send crew on the first launch on Artemis 1. Then we will send crew, but we won't land on the moon for Artemis 2. Then we'll land the crew for Artemis 3. And we we do that build up so that we can gain experience with our different hardware. We're sure it's working. We're sure we have there aren't unknown unknowns. And, and the crew pass along lessons learned to each other as they do these early missions. And that helps ensure the success of the later missions. So that first early mission to Mars someday won't be the only one, but certainly shortening it and having those lessons learned and, and bringing the crew back home safely and being ready to do the next one even better is a foundation of the way that we've been so successful in human spaceflight. So, Julie, to pull all this together, um, and looking forward to the first crewed mission to Mars, how optimistic are you that with all of the science and with all of the insights and all of the experience we've got, we will safely get that mission there and back again? Well, you know, if someone handed me a magic rocket that could take a crew to Mars today, I would be very worried about that. But as I look at the things that we're planning to do for Artemis and how we're planning on learning to live and work on the lunar surface and getting the kinds of data we need for those no gravity, partial gravity kinds of transitions, more data on deep space radiation, I think we're going to learn a lot from that those Artemis missions. And then that is going to make us ready for that first mission to Mars in a much quicker period of time. So I have great confidence that when we do that mission, say in about 15 and 20 years, that that mission will be a safe one and that we'll be ready to do it. I really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. This has been a blast. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Mission Interplanetary is an audio program, so we can't show you pictures of space. But we can share what space sounds like. In a segment we call Sounds of Space. Hey, Katie, what do you think that was? Clearly, someone has got something to say. It's like a beacon. <laughs> and I mean, it's and it's it's sending out a signal. And I think that they want to have a conversation. And I'm pretty sure they want to have that conversation. Well, maybe it's with me, but with, it's certainly with a bunch of us. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so, so where is this coming from? Where is this beacon coming from? And I, I love the, the the way that you really honed in on that idea of a beacon. You'll see why in a second. I mean, it's it's clearly something very, you know, rotating at a very regular okay. frequency. Yes, you got that almost tick in it. Yes. And well, I, I, I don't know that I don't know that it's far away. Right. It could be something 
on the moon that's sending signals back Interesting. to Interesting, yes. Um, I, I don't know how we would, what its signature would be to know whether it's close or far. And that's actually kind of interesting. Like when you hear from something from space, how do you know how far away it is? That's a really good point. It's definitely compelling. Though. It is compelling, isn't it? Yes. So in this case, it was far away or it is far away. And the cyclic nature of it, you got exactly right. And this idea of a beacon. So this is the sound of a pulsar. And it's actually the beating heart of the Crab Nebula, which is located some 6,500 light years from Earth. I know exactly where it is. <laughs> right, yes. You can pinpoint it. You, right, no, you're now in the right neighborhood. <laughs> I do. Well, I do. it's not about where, but what. Um, Chan, the, the, the Crab Nebula was one of the things that was imaged by the Chandra X-ray telescope. Right, of course, yes. And it's yes. this beautiful thing that even when I see images of it, I know exactly what it is. And it's always compelling. And I used to show it in every talk. So Andrew, Andrew, yes. speak some speak some physics to me. I mean, I, I, I hear pulsar. It doesn't yeah. really speak to me. Speak to me of physics. Yeah. So this is what a pulsar is. A pulsar is a rapidly spinning neutron star, which is the super dense core of an exploded star. And like a lighthouse, so this is where the beacon comes in, a pulsar emits twin beams of radiation that make it seem to pulse. And in this case, in what you've just heard from the Crab Nebula, the pulsar pulses around 30 times per second. What you heard in this case was a sonification of the electromagnetic energy from the Crab Nebula pulsar. The data set records changes in intensity for eight frequency ranges. Then these frequencies were transposed down to audible levels. So you wouldn't just hear it as it is without that transformation. And the intervals between the pulses were stretched to around about nine seconds. This sonification was produced by the great music technologist, Mark Ballora. It was really cool. Hey, how come twin beams? Is it like out one side and out the other? Yeah, so it's it's out of what were effectively the two poles, sort of streaming from one end, then streaming from the opposite uh, end. It, I, I will never look at that picture the same way again. There we are. Yes, we have opened your oral eyes with this. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> so let's listen to that again. our show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen, and our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Email us at interplanetarypodcast at asu.edu and do recommend us to your friends. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. Follow us on Twitter at ii underscore asu for updates. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.